I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1 this morning. Exodus chapter 1. Sort of random, I know. Uh, but we are going to actually look at all of Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2 together this morning under the title, The Quiet Control of God. And the first thing we're going to do is simply read the story together from Exodus chapter 1. So if you're there in verse 1, if you don't uh, have the ESV there and you want to follow along on the screen, I'll keep the, the words up here as we go through the text. But let's just look at what happens at the beginning of the, the book of Exodus, and then we'll unpack this with the time that we have this morning. Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrews, uh, to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you not done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because all, the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could no longer hide him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh 
came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, which is Jethro, later on we find out, uh, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you, not, why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses to his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. There is an unseen power in our world that you might not often think about. It's a power that God created that works on us every moment of our lives. We rarely think about this power because we take it for granted. And when we do think about it, we don't fully understand it. But without this power, we would not survive for very long. And the power I'm speaking of is simply the force of gravity. Without gravity, we would fall off the planet into space and we would all die. Without gravity, the earth could not revolve around the sun and our planet would go spinning off into space and we would all die. But let's just imagine for a moment that that's not true, that we could actually stay on the ground even if we didn't have gravity and we wouldn't go spinning off into space. Without gravity, we would still die because the resistance needed for our muscles 
including our heart muscles, to gain mass and strength is a function that depends upon gravity. Without gravity, we would become too weak to live. And meanwhile, the rain needed to nourish the earth so that we have water to drink would no longer fall to the ground. So eventually we would run out of drinking water and die. But we wouldn't even live long enough to do that because uh, without gravity, the air that we breathe, the oxygen that we breathe, oxygen that we breathe that sinks down to the earth here would dissipate into the atmosphere and pretty soon we would pass out and we would die. So you can see either way, if we don't have gravity, we're dead, all right? And it's with us all the time this unseen force that works all the time. We don't think about it normally. I don't suppose you've even thanked the Lord for gravity specifically. But it is always with us, keeping us alive. And it is evidence of God's common grace to all the world that he showers upon people because God is a good God. Now, there is another unseen power that is parallel to this, but it's even more profound than the force of gravity. But like gravity, it's always with us, exerting its energy, though we don't often think about it. And we may even take it for granted most of the time. And the unseen power that's more profound that I'm talking about is commonly referred to by God's people as providence, God's providence. What is God's providence? It's not a word you'll find in the Bible, actually. Maybe some translation uses it uh, for something, but, but the word providence itself is not really a biblical word. It's one of the words like Trinity that we have developed in uh, Christian circles and the church has developed through the centuries to describe a phenomenon that we see going on in the scripture all the time as part of God's activity. That God, through his sovereign power, lovingly directs exerts his energy over the affairs of the world that he created, that he actively governs, directs, rules over, administrates, upholds, and provides for that which he made. And he does this both for believers and unbelievers because he is a good God. In our call to worship this morning, we used the opening verses from Psalm 145. The psalm goes on to affirm the providence of God. It says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to those who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Heidelberg Catechism describes God's providence as the almighty, everywhere present power of God whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. But God does not hold us and, and uphold everything and govern the world simply so that life can be sustained on planet earth. God has a goal in mind for all of these things. He has a purpose toward which he is directing the world. 
ultimately for his glory and for our good. Louis Burkhoff, in his influential systematic theology, calls providence the continued exercise of God's energy, whereby the creator preserves all his creatures and is operative in all that comes to pass in the world and directs all things to their appointed end. Have you ever recognized God's providence in your life? Do you take note of it when it happens? I think that we all do on occasions, such as those times when significant change happens in our lives, some event that was unlooked for or came in a surprising way that had implications for us. And we we think about the providence of God in our life. Or when we realize how events may have unfolded but they went a different direction. Have you ever been running late and annoyed driving down the road and you come upon this accident that's just happened and we think, you know, if I had been there 30 seconds earlier, I would have been right in the middle of that accident. And we thank God for his goodness. Now, there's a lot we could talk about with with this scenario and what would have happened and what was God doing. But sometimes we see something and we realize, you know what, that could have been me. Or there's a near miss and we thank God for his protection and his goodness, his providence. And we look back on our lives and we remember times of great disappointment and heartache. And then we trace our lives from that point. And sometimes we realize that God actually used that time to greatly direct our lives in a different direction. And we would never have had the opportunities we would have had or that we ended up having. We never would have met that person or any number of things except for that difficult time. And we end up thanking God for that time. And I believe that in those moments of awareness of God's providence, God is allowing us to glimpse just a little of what he is doing in every corner of the universe every single day and in our lives all of the time. He's reminding us of his wise and loving and guiding control because we can forget about this. We can become like little children, right, who eat food at their father's table, dress themselves with the clothes he has supplied, live in the house he's working to provide, but fail to recognize where those blessings come from and even complain when something is not to their liking. But it is good and right for us to be recognizing and thankful for the divine providence of God, to be aware of God's continuing intervention and sustaining grace in the world. Not only is it proper that we live as grateful people, but it is reassuring when we look at our world and realize what appears to be happening, when our society pushes toward governing policies and laws that are contrary to revealed truth, when we eye international events and we hear people all week in the news talking about the possibility of World War III and some people saying we already are in World War III and and things like that. It's good, it's biblical for us to be reminded this is my father's world. Oh, let me not forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. In the book of Exodus, God reveals himself to his people in dramatic, amazing, public ways. If you keep reading, God is about to reveal his power through the plagues on Egypt, his mercy in the Passover, his healing at the waters of Marah, his holiness at Mount Sinai, his repentance after the incident of the golden calf, his glory before Moses and at the dedication of the tabernacle. 
And I could list several more. And each of these events are dramatic representations of himself. God is, is disclosing himself to his people in new and dramatic ways that he did not give them in the book of Genesis. But in the opening two chapters, God is setting the stage for all of these events. And as the story unfolds in these chapters, God is rarely mentioned. He visibly enters the story only once toward the end of chapter one and only once in chapter two at the very end. Other than that, all of the events, and we hear a lot of them, there's a lot of time and a lot of events that are sort of squeezed together in chapters one and two. And in most of them, they just happen like events happen in the world today that they, they just unfold with this invisible unfolder going on. And yet, in these chapters, we see unmistakably God's providence, the quiet control of God. And as God's people, I think it comforts us. And actually, it calls us to worship when we realize God's quiet control. I think there are at least three essential lessons that we learn about God's providence in these opening chapters of Exodus. I just want to share with you this morning. I think they reassure us and lead us to worship God for his wise and gracious control. So what are these lessons this morning? Well, the first one is this. God is at work whether we realize it or not. God is at work whether we realize it or not. So if you look at uh, uh, Exodus chapter 1 in verses 20 through 21, it says God dealt well with the midwives and because the midwives fear God, he gave them families. This is the place where God is mentioned in chapter 1. Then the events continue on and on. God's never mentioned and we come to the end of chapter 2. God hears the groaning. He remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and, J- and Jacob and God sees the people of Israel and it ends with this wonderful statement, God knew. And here we see the God who created all things actively working behind the scenes, guiding, protecting, administrating, watching, participating. This is God, not as he will reveal himself to Moses in the cleft of the rock in all his splendor. This is God working stealthily, whose handiwork will be manifest only to those who see it by faith. But don't be deceived. Just because God is not doing his work overtly for all to see, for even the blindest to see, it doesn't mean he's not doing any work or that he's doing his work any less. And I want us to just look at what God does for his people in these two chapters. Every trouble or attack that comes upon God's people is thwarted by the mighty hand of God who is building a nation for himself. We're used to thinking of these chapters as the hard time of Israel. And then finally God hears their cry and he comes in and answers that cry and he rescues them out of Egypt. And so this is just the bad time for Israel where, where, the, where all, the, all the slavery is talked about. And no doubt their lives are very hard in these two chapters. But what is really going on in these chapters is the evidence of the governing hand of God through it all. Even during chapter one and two, he is moving his nation toward his own purposes and nothing can stand in his way. I want you to look at what God does for his people despite the challenges. First of all, it says in uh, verses six to eight that Joseph and uh, all his brothers and their generation die. 
this means two things. First of all, it means the relationships that gave them status among the Egyptians are now passed away. And their presence in Egypt would start to be questioned by a new generation. Who are these people that are living among us? And notice in verse 8, it says, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. They didn't know the past. So now they have to form this new relationship. What's going to happen? The honored patriarchs of the tribes have passed off the scene. These are the ones through whom God did amazing things, bringing them to Egypt, establishing, among the, establishing them among the Egyptians. This is where we learn at the end of Genesis that God meant everything that happened to Joseph for good. And they're set up in Egypt, but that is gone now. So this is a troubling time for the Israelites. But what happens in spite of the deaths of Joseph and the early Jewish patriarchs? We see it in verse 7. It says, but the people of Israel were faithful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And notice how the story reads. I'm not going to point this out every time, but you'll see it every time yourself if you're looking for it. The people were fruitful and increased. They multiplied and grew. The land was filled with them. God isn't mentioned at all. Things just happen, just like we think they happen in our lives when God is not mentioned. Yet everything we're reading about and everything we discover later is actually the result of God's active providence, his control over what he is doing. God prospered. He multiplied. He strengthened the people. He filled the land with them. This is God's doing, as we discover if we keep reading the story. So what happens next? Well, something terrible, it would seem. Egypt forces them into slavery. Verse 11 says, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh, the, 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 the Hebrews, store cities, Python and Ramses. And in verse 13, it says, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This is terrible. But what happened despite this terrible situation? It's sandwiched in th- this passage in verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They can't stop this from happening. What is going on? God is going on. He's growing them. And he's going to do this. It reminds me of, the, of Acts in the early church. The more they tried to stamp out the believers in Christ... And, and, and Luke puts these little signposts up for us in Acts. The more they multiplied, the more the word spread because this is God's doing behind the scenes. So the Egyptian government had to come up with another plan. They came up with plan B, which is nothing short of genocide. First, they asked the Hebrew midwives to kill the Hebrew children. But verse 17 says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. They risked their lives to do this. So what happens? Here, we finally see God entering for a moment explicitly into the picture in verse 20. God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. So the Egyptian government had to try something else. They commanded their own people to practice genocide. Verse 22 says, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is to be born, every son that is born uh, to, to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So this is a new level of threat. 
it's one thing for the government to ask a group of people to carry out the mission of eliminating male children. But when Pharaoh commands all his people who live among them to do this, the situation has become rather dire. Now, until this point in the story, every challenge is met. No matter what happens to God's people, God keeps his covenant with them. But what God does now, once the situation becomes dire, is really ironic and providential. The very command that Pharaoh gives to his people to oppress the Hebrew slaves is the very command that God is going to use in his providence to bring about the redemption of the Hebrew slaves. And I'll show you how. As we turn to chapter 2, a couple from the tribe of Levi have a child, and it's a boy. They were probably praying for a girl, (laughs) only because they didn't want their child to be killed. But in verse 2, it says, when his mother saw he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. You know, even as a boy, I was always curious about this passage. I, I think in the King James, which is probably what I was reading back then, uh, it said she, he, he, she saw he was a goodly child, and so she hid him for three months. And I was always like, you know, what if he was ugly? Would, would she have said, okay, we can throw this one in the Nile and we'll, 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 we'll try again? No, uh, you know, because moms are going to love their children no matter what, you know, and, and uh, this is not really what's going on here. What's going on is that the, the narrative is focusing on this person, Moses, as somebody who has been given from God. And Moses is going to become the central figure now in the narrative, and God is going to use him to be the savior of his people out of Egypt. After this, in Exodus, the focus of God's unceasing intervention in the lives of his people would center around this person whom God providentially raised up. When in verse 3, Moses' mother made a waterproof basket where she could hide her baby boy, this very act God used to bring Moses to prominence to save his people. So Moses became the savior of God's people by passing through the water in a little ark daubed with bitumen and pitch, verse three, just like Noah, you remember, in Genesis six to eight had passed through the water in an ark daubed with pitch and became the one whom God used to preserve the human race. And through both men, Noah and Moses, God preserved a new people for himself. The Nile was the source of life to the Egyptians. Every year, the Nile would flood and provide the black land, it was called. The land rich in nutrients for the growing of crops to sustain life. And here, the Nile, the Egyptians meant it as a source of death for Moses. God used it as a source of life through Moses. And it is through the water that he is saved And it prefigures, I think, the coming event in which Moses would lead the entire Hebrew nation through the water, the water of the Red Sea, leading them to salvation. So don't miss this. God uses the very command of Pharaoh intended to destroy his people to bring about the salvation of his people. Moses' mother floats her boy in this little basket, this little ark, if you will. Pharaoh's daughter finds him. She knows it's a Hebrew child and she disobeys her father's command and decides to adopt the child. Moses' sister is nearby and tells the princess, do you want me to find a nurse for the child? I happen to know a good one. And the princess takes him for her own son. This son is going to shake their nation. 
and she is taking him as her own. We're so used to the story, I think that the irony that's in here is often lost on us. But it is a profound example of the providence of God in the world on behalf of his people, working toward a good and wise and gracious end. Even when other people enter into the picture and mean something for evil, God takes it and turns it into good. Even when it seems that all hope is lost, there's never hope that is lost with God. He's always working. His providence is always leading us into his goodness. But after this, there's another problem. Pharaoh seeks to destroy this child, Moses, God's deliverer. Because if we keep reading in chapter 2, in verses 11 and 12, uh, Moses kills an Egyptian who is beating a Hebrew slave, and he thinks no one knows about it. But the next day when he tries to help two Hebrews fighting, they say, are you going to kill us too? And Moses knows the word has gotten out. So he runs away. He flees the country And verse 15 says that Pharaoh finds out and now he's seeking to kill him. Now, why does this happen? Why is this in the providence of God? Because there's something going on here in Moses' mind that the text doesn't state. Actually, we, we get a hint of it when we read Hebrews and Hebrews 11 looks back on this scene. But there's something going on that the text does not say explicitly. Moses is beginning to identify with his own people. His action of killing the Egyptian makes it clear to Pharaoh who he really is and whose side he's on. So Moses instinctively desires to rescue his people and to assist them, to aid them. But when he comes up to these two men fighting, they get onto him. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? By the way, Moses is going to hear that from the Hebrews the rest of his life. (laughs) Who made you? Why should we follow you? Read the wilderness wanderings. This question is going to be repeated again and again. But doesn't that puzzle you? Again, as a boy even, reading this text, I would think that doesn't make any sense. Wouldn't they be like, oh, thank you. You killed the Egyptian the other day. We'll keep it quiet. And, you know, and thank you for your intervention in our lives. No, that's not the way these men felt. Uh, he, he was trying to save them. He was trying to unify his people and kill their enemies already. But they would not accept him as a leader. That meant that Moses would not be able to lead his people until God prepared him to lead them and called him to do it. So there's something left for Moses to learn if he was going to be God's instrument of salvation. He had to learn how to be a shepherd of people so that he become a leader of his own people. So verse 15 says, Moses fled to Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And I love this last statement. I, I, I think, you know, if we're ever preaching this text again or any of you want to preach it, I think you could take the whole thing from this one little tiny statement, which seems completely meaningless, but it means so much in the context of what God is doing. He sat down by a well. What a simple, unimportant, unordained statement, or unadorned statement, I should say. He sat down by a well. Like so many events of our lives that we think are meaningless, ho-hum, Run of the mill, this is happening, and yet God is at work sometimes even in the smallest of ways. Why would sitting at a well be important? Because it was at this well that he met the daughters of the man who would make him a shepherd, the man Ruel, Jethro, who would become Moses' father-in-law. And remember the story of Moses wandering in the wilderness. He's trying to handle everybody's problems at the same time. It's Jethro, his father-in-law, who says, no, 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 no. You need to learn how to administrate 
Jethro, even after Moses had led the people out and, and, and he was leading them to the wilderness, Jethro comes along and he's still teaching Moses how to shepherd. God gave him this relationship to help him become a leader. And think of the irony that Moses, as an Egyptian, rescues these women from the hand of the shepherds. Uh, he's not an Egyptian, but they think he is. They come back and tell their father, this is a, there's a, this Egyptian guy out there and he helped us. But later, he will return to Egypt as a shepherd to rescue his people from the Egyptians. Don't think for a moment that the things that happen in our world and in your life are by some mere chance. There is nothing that just so happens. Everything happens just so. That's how our God works. Because of his divine providence, God is at work in the world, whether we recognize it or not. And I think this story amazingly illustrates this very truth. Now, I want to go a step farther. In fact, I'm going to go two steps further this morning. Not only as God at work, whether we know it or not, but also all of God's work is moving toward an ultimate end. And I'm going to spend just a, a few minutes on, on, on these last points here this morning. Providence is not for its own sake. God is not directing the affairs of his creation merely because he likes being in charge. He has an ultimate purpose or goal in mind. And I think the ultimate purpose or goal is alluded to in verses 23 and 24, the very end of chapter two. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came uh, from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Isaac, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew, he knew. God is doing all that he's doing in chapters one and two because he is marching toward the fulfillment of his covenant promise all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He said, I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He promised Abraham that. Sometimes you wonder, why is Abraham getting off? Because he does some really dumb things in Genesis and he seems to get by with it. But the point of Genesis is that God is going to be faithful to what he promised to Abraham. And, and he can take even the mistakes of Abraham and turn them into the fulfillment of his covenant promise. In the generation after Moses, the people will enter the promised land led by Joshua, the first person to find salvation to the nation of Israel is Rahab, a harlot, who turns to faith in Jehovah and is rescued from the destruction of Jericho. She hid the Hebrew spies under the flax on the rooftop because it just so happened to be the time of harvest and everyone would expect to see barley and flax drying on the rooftop. And Rahab, a Canaanite, had a son named Boaz who married a Moabite named Ruth who just so happened to glean in the field. So she became the great-grandmother of David, king of Israel. David, because of his sin, ended up married to Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah the Hittite. But out of that marriage, which was a, a, a sin, Solomon was born. Solomon's name means peace. And down through the centuries, the Lord actively, we, we can read these stories and we see over and over again, the Lord actively working his divine purposes to the conclusion of his promise. The covenant promise finds its ultimate fulfillment, of course, through the person of Jesus Christ. 
who came into the world through the womb of a virgin named Mary, herself a direct descendant of Abraham. And Jesus is introduced in Matthew's gospel as the son or descendant of David and Abraham. Moses was a great man, and through him, God's people were rescued from Egyptian bondage, and they were brought into the promised land. But Jesus Christ is far greater, and through Christ, we have the ultimate blessing because it's through him that we are rescued from the bondage of sin and death so that we can enter into rest with him for all eternity. All of this has come about because of the continual divine providence of God. We are grateful I think when God works events in our lives to show his grace and his care, that happens to us. We all have stories we could tell about God's providence, but we can't think for a moment that God's providence is for our sole benefit alone. We're part of the story, but it's not about us alone. In fact, we get all bent out of shape sometimes when things don't go our way, don't we? I mean, why is God allowing this to happen, we say? Remember that God is graciously and carefully orchestrating events in this world to the end that Christ may be exalted, that his name might be glorified, and that his people might be blessed. And if God is wise in doing this, and if we look at at chapters like this in Exodus and all throughout the Bible and see God's gracious control, then why are we complaining about things when they didn't happen to go the way we imagined? We wouldn't want God to change a thing because God continually shows that he is working things out for his people's good and for his great glory. And that idea leads us to a final lesson I think that we learn from God's silent control. And it is simply that we must trust what God is doing whether we understand it or not. Whether we understand, whether we like it or not. Whether we agree with it or not. I love the way chapter 2 ends. For some reason, this thought, it, it occurred to me years ago, but I, I love seeing it here. It, this thought, personally, is especially comforting, and maybe it's comforting to you as well, where it says that God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He knew. He knows. Because sometimes we wonder, is God looking? Is he aware? God, are you, aren't you seeing this? Yeah. He knows. He knows about it all. When things are not going well for us, when we look at our world and we're tempted to fear, it is of great comfort that God knows. He is fully aware. He always has been. He's never stopped being fully aware. We have this divine promise from God himself in Romans 8, 28, right? We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because God knows everything that's going on and he's working things out for his glory and for our good. Can we recognize from Exodus 1 and 2 that our God is bringing about an incredible end? Can't we see how he orchestrated events to rescue his people? He can use circumstances to bring about his purposes. He can use his enemies He can use sinful choices by his own people. He can do anything. But we don't see it unless we look through the eyes of faith because it's difficult to see God working when you are in the midst of God's working. Think of the Israelites in bondage. Hundreds of years. As far as we know, no voice from God. They they had their history. They had the truth that the fathers had left them. 
But for hundreds of years, they're in slavery now. No voice from God. The patriarchs are dead. The Egyptians enslave them. They try to kill their children. They make their slavery worse. Seems really bleak. Imagine the children of Israel, what they thought when they were under the thumb of the Egyptian government, the the midwives, how awful that they are being asked to abort the male children. The people in general, what an awful situation that the government is commanding its own people to practice genocide against the Israelites. What a terrible time. God, how could you allow such a thing? Aren't you a righteous God? There's a prophet that said that in the, the minor prophets, by the way. Aren't you a God who can't look upon evil? Why are you allowing these things? But in the quiet background, below the din of the cries of God's people, God knows. And he's at work. When he comes at the end of chapter 2 and says, I've I've heard your cries, it's not because he just heard them for the first time. They finally got loud enough. He is known all the time. Egypt was not just a time of hardship for God's people. Egypt was an incubation period during which he grew his people from 70 people to hundreds of thousands, even millions by some historian estimations. And he is at work in your life also, especially as a believer. You don't know it perhaps. You've been through a severe trial. You're experiencing difficulties. There are pressures and heartaches. And you know it will stay and keep you that God knows what you are going through. And he is in control of it. Not just the trial itself, but even the severity of it. He is tirelessly at work and he knows. Sometimes God does sensational things in our lives. It's true. Sometimes he makes himself known in dramatic ways. We get a check that we weren't expecting. And wow, that answers a a wonderful need that we've been praying for. Or we get great news from the doctor or, or something like that happens we've been praying for and everybody knows, everybody's praying together and then we, we have this wonderful news and this, this big dramatic thing. That happens from time to time. These answers to prayer, a dramatic provision at just the right moment and we say, look what God is doing. Isn't he a great God? But guess what? When God is not being dramatic, he is still tirelessly at work in silent command in loving control. And I'll tell you what, most of the time, this is how God works. We're living in a time, I think, when we're encouraged to gravitate to the sensational. You know, we have entertainment, games, movies, special effects, thrills, challenges. They're always making more theme parks, you know, and things that will thrill us. I, we, we went to a park that had rides this week, and I rode one of them, and I was done. Uh, and and uh, they're, they're scarier than they used to be when I was a kid for some reason. And, uh, you know, it's, everybody's like crying. They, they wait in line for an hour and a half for this two-minute ride, you know, just to get that thrill. We live in that kind of environment. And I think we expect that God's not really doing anything unless he's doing these great, wonderful Uh, dramatic things. But in reality, most of our lives are lived without the sensational. And God wants us just to be faithful to him every single day, really doing the same routine, which is obeying God day after day and trusting in the fact that he is providentially guiding their lives. This means we have to be satisfied with and trust in the quiet control of God. You know, it was because of the silence of God on the mountain of Israel I should say the mountain of of Sinai, the quietness of God on Sinai, that the Israelites were restless. And what did they do? They began to worship the golden calf. Moses 
had been gone 40 days and they started to complain. Is he ever coming back? What happened to this God? He brought us out here and he left us. 40 days it took for them to say this. So they took matters into their own hand and they created drama because God wasn't creating it at the moment. And when you wander from the Lord, it may be during a period of silence. There's no drama going on. God isn't doing anything that's, that's identifiable in your mind. So you're not getting enough attention maybe from God. Things have settled down. But following God is not the dramatic blessings all the time experience that you thought it would be maybe. And in a world where we glamorize the sensational, we're tempted to wander from God. And I want us to think about the providence of God and allow these opening chapters of Exodus to encourage us to rest in the sovereign, confident control of our omnipotent, all-wise creator, our heavenly father. He loves us. He's working all things in salvation history for his greatest glory and our greatest good. We need to take the advice of Psalm 4610, which says, be still and know that I am God. God does this in Exodus 1 and 2. He's showing us this so he can tell us, this is how I work in your life and you can trust me just the same. And let's do that this morning as we trust our Lord who is continually and silently controlling everything that is in our lives. Father, we're great.